Welcome everyone to this podcast, um, during which we will be hearing from some of the members of this year's Young Women Lead Committee. The Young Women Lead Committee is a joint project between the Scottish Parliament and the Young Women's Movement. And this year they have just launched their report, so it's a really exciting time. We're joined today by some of the members of the committee um, and also Elena from the Young Women's Movement. So I will get everyone to introduce themselves. And Elena, do you want to start first? I'm Elena. I am the National Programmes Coordinator for YWCA Scotland, the Young Women's Movement, and also a Young Women Lead alumni. I'm Ramin. I am a Young Women Lead participant um, in this year's programme. It has been an amazing journey. Um, so excited to be at the end of it now. <laughs> Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm also a participant in Young Women Lead this year, and I am in my final year at the University of Edinburgh. So I guess the first thing it might be helpful to do um, is just chat a little bit about the background to Young Women Leads. Eleanor, do you want to chip in on that one? Yeah, definitely. So as you said, Hayley, this is our partnership programme ran between ourselves at YWCA and you at the Scottish Parliament. It started in 2017 and is a leadership programme for young women living in Scotland aged between 14 and 30. And so the purpose of the programme is to create a committee and run an inquiry on a topic of their choice. So the first year, uh, which I was a participant on, did an inquiry into sexual harassment in Scottish schools. And then the second year, who graduated last summer, looked at the barriers to participation in sport for women and girls. And in this third edition, um, they looked at the transition from education to employment for ethnic minority women. Just in terms of sort of how the programme is run, um, I don't know if you want to say a little bit about, about what happens and how the group meet up and then we can maybe chat a little bit about um, specifically what this year's group were up to. Yeah, so in the first couple of years, the programme will run wholly in the Parliament. So the cohorts would come together for training days with Parliament staff and then look at all the different topics they could potentially do an inquiry on and make that kind of decision as a group as to what um, investigation really they wanted to take forward and then they would r run through almost a fast track edition of how a normal Scottish Parliament committee would, would run so they would take evidence from witnesses and do their own uh, research, run their own inquiry and then feedback with recommendations to the Scottish Government we changed up a little bit this year and um, we ran some training sessions with the participants before they went into the Scottish Parliament. And then, of course, as I'm sure we'll discuss, everything changed after the first committee meeting where they took evidence from witnesses as something that you may have heard of. The COVID-19 pandemic somewhat set this year a bit off track. <laughs> Just a slight challenge for this year's participants, but um, one that they all rose to fantastically. And as Elena said, we started off with a, a, an evidence session in the Parliament and then very quickly had to change how we were doing things and revert to evidence sessions over Zoom um, and meeting up virtually and running your inquiry remotely and pretty much online. And it would be good to hear just what you learned from the evidence sessions this year. It was a really uh, kind of positive experience going into being able to get that ability to run um, and be part of, of, a, of a committee. It's not something that every day you'd, you'd be able to do. So I think that was, that was very positive. 
In terms of the evidence sessions, um, it was very apparent that the current institutions and structures that are in government um, mm -hmm. for supporting ethnic minority women um, in Scotland were pretty um, lacking. And it felt that um, a lot of the slack of that was being picked up by third sector you know, organisations mm -hmm. um, and the ones that we brought into the committee. Um, so it felt that it was, it was quite enlightening to see all the work that they do um, and how they are kind of filling in that gap. Like it was quite evident from the evidence sessions that a lot of the organisations um, felt that the, the way it's funded is very one year, two years. So I think it was quite important that that's more of a sustainable area. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think it's clear like from the evidence that it's much more about sort of action taking place now, you know, that there's there's lots known and there's lots of research and evidence out there, but not a huge amount you know, is actually resulting in real change. Um, and do you want to, I don't know, Lauren, if you want to maybe just tell us a little bit about who exactly you heard from um, when you carried out your evidence sessions, um, maybe chat about some of the people that sort of presented this to you. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate to be part of the kind of the first set of people. So we got the parliament um, evidence session experience, which is impossibly empowering just to like sit there and and know that you can kind of make a critique and ask important questions. And I remember we we, I remember we spoke to lots of interesting people, but I think there's Viana Maya, and she worked from like an organization that matched interns to um, organizations. Mm -hmm. And she said a lot about culture and how um, culture awareness and culture sensitivity training is really important. But when you make it a training session, you scare people into thinking it's this very scary thing that they are going to mess up anyway. So. Uh, I try or it maybe aggravate people who are like come from a less genuine place to be even more biased and mm -hmm. that was a really interesting perspective for me to just kind of engage with because we, we, we think um, maybe this is a result of my generation where we want to talk we want to do the learning and the discussions and that's very core to kind of how I interact with my friends and my course meets at university but those discussions and just the discussions and just the training isn't the end of the story Mm -hmm. And the idea that it needs to be like a continue, like um, diversity of culture needs to be continuously integrated into the working experience and the hiring experience and just um, how people get to relate to each other on the day to day. So that, for example, when um, it's Ramadan, people are fasting and praying, people aren't like, oh, oh, what is what mm -hmm. is this? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot from the evidence sessions um, and you know, we had um, great people come along and um, the organisations came along where um, we had Sarjeet Dillon, who came from the Council of Ethnic Minority Voluntary Sector Organisations, um, SEMVO. There's such great work being done, um, both with, with employers, with mainstream organisations, with organisations like the ones around the table here today. And it's such a shame that we only have one year's funding. Uh, we had Fergus McMillan who came along from the Skills Development Scotland. Some people are obviously introducing anonymised um, applications, but we need to go further than that and think about the makeup of panels and whether or not they have representation from communities on them. I think those are things that will start to change um, uh, things in practice. Um, Dilraj Soki Watson who came from Amina, the Muslim Women's Resource Centre. Workplace cultures. Uh, are big influence in women's choices, young women's choices as well, to, you know, 
choose, choose certain career paths or actually drop out of careers, especially if you've got really highly qualified degrees. Um, Trishna Singh from Sikhs and Joke. We know that when girls leave school, they will not go and sign on at the job centres because there's still stigma attached to that of being unemployed. Once you leave school, you're lost. You're not in any statistical data. And that is going back about 25 years. And um, Vianna Maya from AAI Employability. If you haven't had that conversation with the whole company, and like you were saying, it has to come from the, the top right through. So if you have having diversity or unconscious bias training, it shouldn't be something that is just a one-day thing because it's not going to change over, overnight. I'd also like to extend a thanks to Christina McKelvey, MSP, um, our Minister for Older People and the Equalities, who came along to our evidence session as well um, and provided invaluable insight into the current situation in Scotland. I think we've allocated um, about £2.6 million pounds, you know, over the... Um, a 2019-2020 uh, to a number of organisations to advance race equality uh, in particular. And we, we've got the Workplace Equality Fund, which is currently providing about £800,000 across 25 different projects. And that tackles workplace barriers, you know, for certain priority groups um, and projects and have to involve collaboration. So that working together, you know, between charities, third sector, you know, community organisations, the private sector. And I think about 13 of those 25 projects um, funded under the Workplace Equality Fund are um, precisely targeted at minority ethnic young people. Yeah, it really helps inform the inquiry. You were split into two groups to carry out your inquiry. Um, there was a group who were looking specifically at the education side of things and another group looking at things from an employment perspective. Do you want to just chat a little bit about your surveys and sort of what you found out through them and, and what engagement work you carried out? We launched a, a survey for employers, employees and just young women in general to understand how much support they felt they experienced when they were in school. And then, of course, like how people experience hiring and how companies are trying to are trying their best to um, be more to practice equality and equity. And from the survey, because I was an education team and we're mainly focusing on that, it was really interesting to see almost a generational jump in career awareness. It seems like um, people who were like 18 to 23 were kind of aware that they had these um, pastoral teachers were kind of aware that they should have career development plans. But then people who were older, 26, and kind of that range up to 30, might have forgotten that they had this um, kind of scaffolding at school. But in their responses to the survey, were very much like, I do not recall having um, this kind of career-focused experience at school. And that was interesting to think of, um, maybe it's gotten better in the years in between. Or maybe there's just more just kind of resources and dialogue outside of school that is causing students to pursue these facilities within schools. It's quite interesting actually, because when we did the employer employment surveys, there was, from the employee side, a lot of employees felt that it was very difficult for them to for career, career progression um, and, and other things. I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that there was no real careers advice and things given at school. So there's a major link there um, from young people coming out of schools and having that um, confidence and having that, like preparing them from the world for the world of work and getting into the world of work, it's very difficult to then try and pick up all the skills at once whilst you're learning a new job. 
Um, so I think from the employee's point of view, it was the experience was somewhat around where they come from in the education. But then also when you go when they came into employment, it was really interesting was that a lot of people, um, well, I think it was like 50.5%, pulling a stat now, um, that they actually felt that there was no culture awareness um, or there was no kind of diversity or meaningful diversity in their workforce. And a lot of that should lie with the employers to make sure that that is, that is there. Um, and I think that then linking that, because we did a separate survey, one for employee or employers and one for employees, um, looking then at the employers' surveys, um, a lot of them were saying, well, you know, we don't really know what to do. We don't really know what people want. Um, it was almost like looking stabbed in the dark and that really came through and their responses was really mismatched. A person was doing this and someone was doing something completely different on a different, on a different side of the spectrum. Um, so I think that really is something that, you know, one of the employers, they, they, they have tried to do something meaningful. They have tried to kind of get in and have a diversity inclusion um, manager and things like that. But it seems a lot of it can be construed as quite superficial in the face of it. So advertising and, and things like that, showing that they're, they're doing things in the outside world. But when you get underneath the bonnet, exactly what are their goals and what actually is being done? Because their organisations, when you look at their demographics and their senior leadership, does not reflect that. So I think a lot of that, those themes kind of came up and there's quite a few conflicts between employers and, and employees. I think that jumping on your point of almost performative diversity and inclusion, I'm graduating soon, so I'm, like, I'm, I'm trying to get employed. I'm thinking about those things. And when I apply for jobs, there is... Um, there's an aspect of the application that asks um, like for my race and gender because the, the company is you know trying to collect this data so they can be actively diverse and you know try to accommodate all of these different just recruit from a diverse pool is I guess what I'm saying and what happens is I attend these interviews or I go there for internships and they will have a fairly diverse intern pool but then if you look at anyone who's like a full-time hire they have one or two non-white faces and that's that's very confusing. So like as a black female, I get that one black woman in the company to be my mentor and we have a wonderful time. But then she, we get to have this kind of conversation of, we know why we're assigned to each other and this is gonna be fun because we do get to have conversations that we can only have with each other and that's very valuable. That being said, it can't continue to be a one-to-one -one matching process where every year they kind of keep one diverse phase and that becomes it. So with all of the evidence that you've found, um, you've made a number of recommendations to the Scottish government, um, but also to employers. We are now going to hear from Young Women Lead participants Valeria Indiukova, Oreo Fadam, and Sehar Gilani, reading out some of the recommendations. Ensure that local authorities recruit BAME-identifying individuals as career advisors. Employers should have a dedicated diversity and inclusion officer with sufficient expertise and understanding of the lived experience of diverse groups. The government should develop a guide for HR professionals to ensure young women reach their full potential in the workplace, including an intersectional lens on young BAME women. Ensure that local authorities invest in training and development for all career advisors to ensure provision reflects the needs of young BAME women. 
government should ensure employers collect and use workforce data to benchmark current levels of black, Asian, and minority ethnic women within their workplace to identify under-respected populations. The government should evaluate the effectiveness of the existing toolkit surrounding recruitment practices. This should be expanded to include a guide to delivering race and ethnicity induction and training at work and fostering inclusive workplace cultures, not limited to just the recruitment process. Acknowledge the importance of role models and create mentorship schemes for young black, Asian and minority ethnic women, particularly in fields which are less likely to be pursued by this demographic. On the point about role models, I think everyone understands that having role models are very big deal. You can't become what you don't see. A goal becomes that much more manageable and you see someone like yourself who's already achieved it. And just like from my own like, personal experience, I studied mathematics at university and for a very long time I was, I didn't totally communicate to other people or think of myself as a woman in STEM or a female mathematician. And then hidden figures happened and suddenly it made a lot more sense. And that is one movie about three specifically brilliant women that is set in like set, set in the 60s a very long time ago but that one moment of representation meant and still means so much to me and those women do exist in scotland in the united kingdom globally at various levels doing various things and they would be willing to give their time to speak to young women they would it, it's important to celebrate their successes and showcase them so kind of on a more structural level, we need to make an investment in building mentorship schemes or profiling these role models so that their stories and experiences exist and can then be a source of inspiration for younger people. Yep, I think that's, that's really important. Mentorship um, is something that, again, totally comes into employment and something that employees need to start taking seriously. Um, a few big firms are actually doing it already, but this needs to be done across the board and it needs to be as part of a, a benchmark and part of that framework um, and employment. Other one around training on, on race and, and discrimination within the workplace, a really stark, quite troubling um, finding from the surveys was around someone who felt like they couldn't speak to their manager around anything to do with um, any issues they were having on racism within the workplace or any discrimination issues they were having. And that really quite that that really quite hit home for me because I've always been in a position or an organisation where anything was to happen, I knew it would be taken seriously. Um, but it was so kind of like it, it it really took me aback to see that finding. Um, so I think there's definitely a space where some form of um, training needs to be given. The government needs to ensure that this that this is something that all organisations within Scotland are going to try and. Um, adhere to in some way and I think that be, making that part of a toolkit um, as part of a standard will will really help that and, and get employers to stick to what they what they say um, rather than just having a you know culture awareness day or something like that it needs to be more it needs to be more tangible it needs to actually get to the root of the problems within um, society that we're facing one good practice that we've seen that came from one of our employers um, was around an implementation plan. So they actually had recruitment targets um, specifically for underrepresented groups and they had an implementation plan that showed exactly how they'd take the steps to get to that position. Um, and I think that's a really great idea and something that, you know, it's 
it's the way organizations work anyway. They do their business planning, they do their yearly planning and incorporating that as part of it. And then again, leaning back to having a diversity and inclusion executive, that voice at that top part of the organization um, informing those strategy decisions is, is really going to help. Um, another point on kind of the education side is acknowledging additional barriers. So um, sadly, people from minority ethnic backgrounds um, statistically are more likely to um, be closer to the poverty line and such issues. And now, of course, we're kind of working from home and studying from home and being able to do that comfortably and efficiently is a position of privilege. And so even though we are recommending that lots of employment and careers awareness resources should be available online because that's very accessible, there is the digital divide to acknowledge and saying that someone having unlimited access to the internet and a computer or cell phone or tablet or something to kind of engage with it properly isn't something consumable people. So thinking like at the school level and even at like the national level of the parliament about how we can make this as inclusive as possible. So talking specifically about this year, the programme was due to finish in June 2020 with a series of events at the Parliament, but we had our meeting in February and then after that we were no longer able to go back there. So from March the programme went virtual and it was extended in the hope initially that we'd be able to go back into the Parliament, but it became more and more obvious that that wasn't going to happen. So all of the engagement work was done virtually by our participants. So definitely not the programme we had planned, but a real credit to everyone that took part for getting through it and producing the report that they did. So Maren and Raman, it'd be great to hear about how you found the experience pre and during COVID. I love meeting everyone. We, we, we met, I think, once a month in Glasgow for all of the training sessions. And I, before this experience, would call myself apolitical in many ways. I think organized government confused me and wasn't necessarily something I engaged with. But through this process, I've learned a lot about the devolved governments in the UK, which was interesting. Voted for the first time, partially due to, I guess, like this ecosystem around me. So that was really cool. And all the young women who are on the program with us are absolutely incredible. And just the fun chats and even the more, I guess, serious topics have been wonderful to explore together. Similar to, to Lauren, I feel like when we did turn virtual, I think that way we actually were able to connect a bit more because we, we got more into our, our smaller groups and, um, you know, we were able, when we got into the thick of the inquiry, um, you're in the comfort of your own home. You started to kind of see more about people's lives. Um, and I really have made, I definitely made friends for life um, through this programme. So, yeah, I, I really think it's it's definitely um, a good one to get involved in, it, especially if you're um, just kind of not fully engaged in any kind of anything um, within your community. It's a great way to, to start, step in. Um, there's so many women that, I've met have done amazing things um, and then there's women who that this is this is the first kind of thing that they've ever done um, with their community or, or with an organization so um, very diverse mix of people um, and I think also the the more serious side of it kind of like like Lauren was saying um, I it's really opened my eyes doing this inquiry 
and it's really made me feel like I can actually make a difference having this opportunity it's it's, it's definitely it is a really serious opportunity like you will never be able to go in and and have a, a committee or be part of a committee like you are in this program and um, so I'd really take that um, opportunity and and run with it after all of your hard work everything that's gone into the inquiry and you know all of the recommendations that have come out in the report for each of you what do you think is the the one most important thing that you want to see change as a result of your inquiry am i not allowed to say everything (laughs) (laughs) i think all of our recommendations are important and compelling but a really interesting one was the one about funding all of these organizations do great things and the scottish parliament does fund a lot of really interesting relevant projects for various communities but that funding lasts a year or two years or a year and a half but the problem cannot disappear in a year so there needs to be some kind of process for sustained support for these valuable causes. One for me, I really hope this inquiry um, gives employers a kick up the bum um, <laughs> to tell them that they can no longer just say that they're, um, cele- they're celebrating diversity. They can no longer just be part of a network or a group. Um, they actually have to actively do things and they actually have to um, to incorporate inclusion and incorporate um, these policies within the, the fabric of their business um, because these are the institutions that are going to shape our society. They shape every single day of our lives. Um, and if anything, I I will champion to the nth degree that we get a framework and a, tool, a toolkit um, so employers can no longer just say, we don't really know where to start. Um, because as a government, we're saying, <laughs> we've given you where to start, you need to do it. <laughs> it's brilliant just to hear how much you've got out of the experience and it's the, the impact it's had on both of you as individuals. Um, has it made either of you think more about sort of a future in politics and maybe becoming more involved and potentially thinking about becoming the first ethnic minority woman to become a member of the Scottish Parliament? I, I'm I'm for it. I, I'm an international student. I'm not sure if I'm allowed. Definitely, this has made me really interested in being involved in policy. And just like we've created a whole thing that exists and said something important that speaks to young women, being continuing to be involved in different research opportunities that say something about different groups is something I'm going to keep doing. Definitely, it's got me to get more involved in politics. Um, I did a degree in politics and then walked away from it for a bit. And then Young Women Lead got me back in. Um, so I feel that I'm definitely more kind of awakened to what's happening and, and how I can actually help. Um, and it actually feels quite good that I'm able to like do this inquiry because I, I kind of felt a bit like, oh, you know, how can I make an impact? How can I make a difference? Um, and I think this has shown you can. It doesn't matter what you're doing or where you're from. Um, considering becoming the first ethnic minority woman MSP, um, <laughs> I think I need a bit more life experience um, before getting making that step. Um, but again, like I said, I've met so many amazing women, um, and I think through that network, um, if we we encourage each other, I think overall there's about twenty. Was there twenty three of us, Elena? Twenty three of you graduated, yeah. 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 
So like that in itself is a huge network. Um, and we each, like we all, if you know, we should sit together, support each other. Um, and I'm sure um, that'll be encouraging to see one of us making that step to become the next MSP. A huge thank you to our two producers, Rabia Akhtar and Miriam Hussein, who have helped us pull together this podcast. Yeah, thank you all very much. And thanks to the three of you for your involvement today. Um, it's been a really interesting discussion and I know we're all very excited about about the report and about what happens next. Um, and if those of you listening are also interested and want to find out more and want to read the report, you can do that on our website. If you go to parliament.scot forward slash young women leads, you can find out much more about the programme there um, and read this year's report. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.